0: Hey there! This is The Evolution Sermon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that our message makes a week a bit more awesome. See you in church! My hope for you today is that God's Word will move all of us, but especially the men in the room, to be more like Christ. So before I pray and read the passage for today, I want to also thank three people who are making today possible. Three women. My friend Lauren, she's also my coworker, for encouraging me to preach from this passage when I wasn't sure exactly what to preach. Also, author Kathy Kang, who a few months ago preached from uh, the same story in the Gospel of Mark. I'll be reading the one in Luke. And helped me to see and understand uh, this passage in a new light. And then Pastor Estella for reading my sermon notes and calming my preaching insecurities. So (laughs) let's pray. God, we thank you so much for being here this afternoon. And we ask that you would open our hearts, our minds, to what you want us to hear and to learn. Allow us to hear your voice, to hear your spirit, and to be transformed into what you want to make all of us. In Jesus' name, we pray. So in Luke 8, verse 40 through 50, God's word says this. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just then, there came a man named Jairus, a leader, a leader of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. As he went, the crowds pressed on, in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes. And immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, Uh, The crowds surround you and press in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I noticed that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and fell down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. When Jesus heard this, he replied to Jairus, do not fear. Only believed and she will be saved. Before we get to this part in chapter 8 of Luke, Jesus is on a miracle streak. He's calmed the raging waters over the lake. He uh, healed a man who was suffering from demons that were just tormenting his life. So in chapter 8, we see how Luke is presenting further proof that the ways of Jesus, the ways that he inaugurated in Luke Chapter 4, that the oppressed would be set free and the sick would be healed, are ways that actually express themselves, not just in kind of thought, philosophical ways, but in very tangible, embodied forms. People's whole lives are changed, body and soul. And that change also has not just an impact on the individual, but the whole community. So with that in mind, we approach today's text. And this is a story of Jairus and his request to secure his daughter's healing. And nestled in between Jairus's story, we read of an unnamed woman who is on her own journey of healing. In academic terms, this literary form is called inclusio. But if you like to eat like me, I just call it sandwich, right? <laughs> Good bread, tasty stuffing, something in the middle, and some more bread. Two stories that give meaning to each other while simultaneously drawing attention to the center. Thus, in this particular scene, we find a decentering or interruption of Jairus' story. Or, as I see it, decentering of maleness in order to center, bring attention to a woman's story so that we can all. Learn what it means to become whole. Decentering maleness is a journey towards wholeness. The contrast in these stories and their main characters highlights the way in which seemingly innocent, usually unspoken social and religious practices can often ignore the needs of the most vulnerable amongst us. In the midst of the noise and uproar of the crowd, Jairus, a leader, a synagogue leader, a man with an important title, a man whose role was to maintain the law and the teaching of the commandments, a man with power and privilege, walks right up to Jesus. And he does that without hesitation. And then only then, when he's face to face with Jesus, does he fall to his knees and present what he says in mark it says that Jairus said my little daughter is at the point of death come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live hearing his plead and without exchanging any words Jesus immediately sets off with him Jairus has clearly used his position within the community his social standing to advocate for his daughter and don't get me wrong that's a good thing. I'm a father. I do the same thing. As men, particularly in the US and Latin America, where I'm from, my context, where I come from, this is what we're told to do. What men are taught we must be assertive, we must be in command of the situation. We're to be the primary providers and protectors of our families. So, again, what Jairus is doing is good and right, but it stands in contrast to the unnamed woman's experience and her actions. In fact, before we even hear the woman's story, Luke tells us that the welcoming crowds Jesus had encountered upon his return now begin to press on him. Jesus is being surrounded to the point that his movement is almost being impaired, right? So the crowd's smothering action makes him inaccessible to those on the outside, on the fringes. Jesus' followers have suddenly become an additional barrier, an impediment for the unnamed woman to reach him. And she must contend against that marginalization in pursuit of her healing. So it's within this chaotic, time-sensitive scene that we're told of an unnamed woman. Luke does not name her, probably revealing that within her historical context during that time, a woman, being a woman meant that you were of very low status. Yeah. To be unnamed is to live in the shadows, unseen, to be considered unimportant enough for people to remember your name. To be named is to live on the margins of society. It is to be recognized mainly by what you lack. So, poor people, we don't know, we don't say their name, poor people, meaning they lack economic stability, or they're crippled, sick, meaning they lack mobility, access, health, or you're unclean. You're excluded because of your condition. To be unnamed is to exist outside of society's imagination, outside of what is normal, acceptable, or welcomed. To be unnamed is to lack the dignity, the respect that all humans deserve, all of God's creation deserves. So though we do not have the name for this woman, we're offered the reason for her exclusion. She has been crippled for 12 years by an uncontrollable bleeding. For 12 years, she's been suffering hemorrhages. Her condition, according to the law, renders her unclean. As Kathy Kang said, she's unclean simply for being who she is in her body. So now, I'm a man, so I can't even imagine what it is to, on a monthly basis, have to do with this biological reality let alone for every single day for 12 years. What I do know though is that women by and large are taught to feel shame for this reality over which you have little to no control over. And sadly, as men, we enforce these sorts of shame-provoking ways that menstruating women are somewhat less attractive, less approachable, or annoying. In countries like the United States and Singapore, most, if not all, women pay to mask, to hide this often very painful period of the month. And you're expected to act like nothing's going on. Where women are unable to afford this, in certain countries, they live like the unnamed woman, excluded from the community's life. Society, in some ways, teaches women to hate themselves, hate the ways in which their bodies deviate, don't conform to acceptable norms or acceptable, attractive, good things. Women are pushed to conform their bodies to the latest trend or to what is attractive to men. You're taught that your bodies are not good enough and... As they are and thus need to be healed and fixed somehow. Thus we see how the woman with the flow of blood is not only suffering physically but also socially. Her hemorrhaging renders her ritually unclean. While her illness is not contagious, her ritual condition was. Therefore she's lived in isolation from her community for 12 years. For 12 years not just suffering her own body, but excluded from intimate relationships, from friendships, from the care, attention, touch that all humans desire and need and want. For 12 years, she's suffered. For the length of Jairus' daughter's life, she's been suffering. Excluded from church, from the temple and from the support of her community. It's pretty hard. But as if that weren't hard enough, <laughs> the woman's prospects for renewed social connections has vanished. It says that she had paid the physicians, the doctors, all her money. One of my professors, he's Dr. Joel Green, says this, whether her doctors were celebrated physicians whose expensive fees made them accessible only to the rich, or she had sought out some fake doctors that were there just to take advantage of the people. Her outcome is the same. Not only is she sick, now she's also poor. The bleeding woman has done everything she can do, yet she continues to live outside of the boundaries of the socially alive in her community. She's sick, she's poor, unclean, And according to Luke, no one could cure her. But she's heard about Jesus. She's heard about that Jesus guy. And what she's heard has brought her a glimpse of hope to her otherwise hopeless situation. Jesus brings hope. Jesus brings hope in our darkest moment. Jesus brings hope when we feel most alone. So she comes from behind, the pressing crowds guarantee that she's going to infect them. She shouldn't be there. She's breaking the law. She's not conforming to the accepted, proper behavior. But she's willing to do so to gain access to divine power, to get close to Jesus. So when she comes from behind... She doesn't even want to address Jesus, but she believes that maybe, just maybe, if she can touch the fringe, the corner of his cloak, that it would be enough. Yeah. Yeah. And it was. Amen? Yeah. She touched the clothes and it was. Immediately, it says that her hemorrhages stopped, her illness is cured. At this point, the story could end. She's cured. The bleeding has stopped. Isn't that what she wanted, what she needed? But it doesn't end there. Because while her physical problem may be cured, she's not yet healed. So the story continues when Jesus recognizes that something has happened. Jesus, who was rushing to heal Jairus' daughter, stops. Suddenly, the request of the powerful, respected leader who had gone straight up to Jesus is put on hold. Jairus is made to wait. Jairus is made to wait for the unnamed, sneaky woman who endangered everyone with her presence. Jesus could have moved on. Could have kept going. There was a serious situation to deal with. Something that was good and right to do. But Jesus stopped. And he asked, who touched me? It's kind of a silly question. What do you mean who touched you? There's there's a crowd. There's tons of people. And Peter, probably saying what most people were thinking, says, Master... Uh, The the crowd surround you and press in on you. What do you mean who touched you? But Jesus is aware that something has touched him and that that touch has not left him the same. Someone touched me. For I noticed that power had gone out from me. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus looked around to see Who had done it? Jesus looks around carefully to see who had done it. This scene, according to Kathy Kang, she says, is very important. Because Asian women may often be raised to be unseen. To be the one who can read the room and respond to the needs of everyone in the room. To know what is socially appropriate in every single moment, to be able to figure out what is needed without asking. Who's the oldest so that they can be cared for first, attended to? And to know that you will not eat if there's not enough food. You're taught to be unseen while you care for others and carry their burden. Therefore, Given the woman's impure state, we might expect that Jesus stopping is actually to correct the woman for her reckless behavior, for doing something that she shouldn't have done, for speaking out of turn, perhaps, in our context. But Jesus does not adopt this stance. Jesus sees, Jesus recognizes that her touch has provoked a transfer of. power his statement reveals that he holds divine power and that he is able to discern when that power is conveyed to others given to others so at this point the woman can't hide the divine is calling her out from the shadows of the crowd so she comes trembling and falls before Jesus why is she trembling? Well, as we've seen her presence and touch are considered irregular, outside of what is acceptable. Therefore, her actions are now open to the interpretation of the crowd. What will they say? She's open to the synagogue leader's judgment. She's open to the rage and anger of all those gathered. She's open to the shame that comes from her condition. Yet, according to Jesus, her actions are a sign of faith. Her boundary crossing, her shattering the rules, breaking the law, are a sign of faith. But if that faith is to express itself fully, It must be out in the open. Acceptance behind closed doors is not acceptance. It's not enough. Her actions must cross the perimeters of the holiness code, overcome the shame of the crowd, and the disgrace of being banished socially, she must come out of the closet. Acceptance must be out in the open. The woman's testimony reveals that although she might have been considered an outcast, unlike the disciples and the crowd, who were still trying to figure out who exactly Jesus was, who, what he was about, she knew that Jesus wasn't just a master, as Peter had proclaimed, but that he was the master The divine made flesh. The one who had come to liberate the oppressed and to heal the sick. That's why Jesus waits until she makes her actions public to pronounce that she is healed. The woman's cure had occurred in the privacy and the hiding that the crowd provided. But as we've discussed, the real problem was one that was public of her relationship to those around her. It was religious and social exclusion that separated her from the life in community. Therefore, Jesus deliberately breaks social conventions, overrides the symbols of clean and unclean. He crosses the barriers that society has created. He challenges the purity codes. Jesus defies Scripture by declaring that the woman's touch had indeed been an act of faith. Her boundary crossing in order to obtain salvation is deemed acceptable and proper behavior, according to Jesus. But Jesus is not content to leave her cured, according to medical conditions. Jesus embraces her into the family of God when he names her daughter, the bleeding woman, who had been socially dead, excluded, marginalized, is now cured and a daughter of God. This renaming identifies her as part of God's own family. She's declared God's daughter not because of her ancestry, who her family people were, or her title, because of a consequence of her faith, of what she did. Jesus has addressed her as a complete person, sought her socially, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Jesus' public declaration also imposes a commitment on those who are gathered there, on the whole community, to receive her as one who is restored. She's to be included in the life of the community. She should be welcomed back to the temple. Now, it's important to note that the story doesn't say if that actually happened. It doesn't say if she was welcomed back into the life of the community, if people embraced her, accepted her, loved her, or affirmed her. But my hope, my hope is that the women here in this room, for the women who are part of Revival Nation that that part of the story would always be made explicit. That your stories of overcoming barriers would always be made explicit and celebrated. That you would not have to sneak up quietly from behind while all the guys go straight up to the front of the line. That your faith, which sometimes breaks the rules and the customs that are acceptable and are created by society might be welcomed and embraced as a glimpse of the restorative kingdom of God. The women here and beyond, that they might not be only cured, but also healed. Now, who's still waiting? Jairus! Jairus. (laughs) 11 pages. Jairus is still waiting. We can't forget him. The religious and community leader, the one with power and privilege, is still waiting. And in the time that he's been waiting, the messenger comes and says that his daughter has died. That he shouldn't bother Jesus any longer. That his daughter is beyond hope. But Jesus tells Jairus, Do not fear. Only believe. I think this statement captures the essence of what we men need to learn from these passages, where a man's request and story has been decentered. At the at the heart of these two stories is the story of how Jesus attends to the most marginalized, while the one with privilege is made to wait, even though his request was fair and good. As men, we are to follow Jesus in decentering maleness. We must follow Jesus in making room, space, and time for women and for those who are non-male. I think if we're honest, despite having the best intentions, as men wanting to see women succeed, like Jairus, we're still afraid. The woman in the story knew she was afraid. Her posture, the way she approaches Jesus, her trembling, she's afraid. Women know. But it is to Jairus that Jesus says, do not fear. It is to men that God is saying, do not fear, only believe. So what is Jairus afraid of? Men, what are we afraid of? Guys, what are we afraid of? What do we fear might happen if women begin to hold the same power and privilege that we have? If our needs are made to wait. What are we afraid of if a woman no longer plays into traditional roles? Now you might say, "We're kind of there." Women have voting rights. They kind of get paid the same. We have programs and policies to take care of the children and the kids. We've advanced so much. But if we're honest, much of the world is still organized around the principles of patriarchy. That is, much of the world still is built in ways that benefit and prioritize guys, men. What is patriarchy? Big word. So let's define it. Patriarchy is a structural force that influences power relations, whether they're abusive or not. Patriarchal beliefs of male heterosexual dominance and the devaluation of girls and women lie at the root of gender inequality. Moreover, and sadly, culture and religion are used to also justify gender inequality by evoking traditional cultural beliefs or biblical interpretations about how women should be treated and their place in the home or in church. Take, for example, women in the workforce. Singaporean sociologist Tao Yuyen, I hope I pronounced that correctly. If not, forgive me. She says, Over recent decades, women's formal employment has steadily increased. Things are getting better. This has, however, not been accompanied by an equal increase in men's participation in housework and care labor. In other words, women are being accepted, but guys, we're not helping them at home. We're not doing anything. Right? So we're like, yes, go to work. You can do it. Policies are being made to support women, but then as they're trying to scale the corporate ladder or move forward, we see that they're carrying a burden, a backpack with 100 kilos, and we say, you can do it! Come on, catch up! (laughs) So as men, we might be supportive and encouraging of women in some ways. But then there's other practices, things that we've been taught, ways, societal norms that actually continue to place an undue burden on women. As Tale says, norms exercise powerful influences. We like to think of ourselves as independent thinkers, or at least in the West we do, as people who can decide what we want and just do it. But the reality is that our notions about What's possible, our possibilities, desires, sense of self, are deeply shaped by our society, where we live. Yeah. Yeah. Hence, as men and all people who claim allegiance to Christ Jesus, we must continuously evaluate our beliefs in light of what God teaches. Yeah. Yeah. In this story, the story of a faith-filled, unnamed, bleeding woman, we find a God that deviates From the norm. Jesus breaks the cultural and religious norms in order to love. So, what do we fear? What power or privilege are we afraid of losing? Jairus thinks he's going for his daughter, but I think there's something else for him there. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I think Jairus was mad or a bit bitter of what this unexpected encounter with this woman had caused. And I get it. But the thing is, fear is keeping him from faith. His fear is robbing him from recognizing Jesus' identity, who Jesus is. Fear is holding him back from realizing that what Jesus just did can actually happen in the future as well. Fear is keeping him from trusting Jesus' ability to provide salvation. You see, fear, or the lack of recognizing and naming what we are afraid of, men, is keeping us from Jesus. You see, when we name our fears, when we recognize what we are afraid of, when we name how fear makes us act, And react, we embark on a journey towards wholeness. When we set aside fear, we're able to see Jesus, recognize Jesus, trust that Jesus saves. Indeed, as we work to decenter maleness, as we work to live in ways that break away from patriarchal patterns and behaviors, as we name our fears and fall at Jesus' feet, as we embody bold faith, law-breaking faith, like that of the unnamed bleeding woman, as we trust Jesus and relinquish our power, we become whole. We become who God intended us to be. Amen? So now I want to... We're going to use the slides. Here's the definition of patriarchy. So where do we go from here? So I want to get a little bit kind of practical. Patriarchy, I defined it, but now we're just going to slow down and read it. Patriarchy is a system of society, government, church, in which men hold power and women are excluded from it. So... How can we do better? What can we do to kind of break these patterns? A few practical things. We need to be more open with our emotions. And again, I'm coming from a US Western context. So evaluate it from that standpoint. If it doesn't apply, if here all the guys are super open and sharing, then awesome. Him and I are the ones who need to get better. And everyone else here, all the guys are doing great. But patriarchy teaches us. That to be superior, to be successful, to be a man, we shouldn't talk about our emotions. There's this phrase, at least where I come from, even Puerto Rico, that says, boys don't cry. But men who openly embrace their feelings, who, men who communicate, even in uncomfortable moments, men who own their strengths and vulnerabilities, men who care, men who cry, thank you. We need to be open, we need to share, we need to be vulnerable with each other. We need to break away from these sort of things that tell us that we can't be who God intended us to be, to have the emotions that God gave us. We also need to be attentive to language. See this thing is baked into like how we talk, how we communicate. If we're going to be more inclusive and open, our language and communication also has to change. Okay, so this tweet, it said, Gender holds women academics back. Gender, very general. Something called gender. Patriarchy and men hold women academics back. I want I to read what, the rest of her phrase. It's, it's a small example of, like, how we talk about things and how we actually don't name what's wrong or what needs to change. And if we're going to do so, if we're going to lean into becoming more whole, becoming who God wants us to be, we have to be attentive to that. So here are some personal practices that I'm still learning, that I'm trying to do. So when I'm invited to speak to an event, I try to find out if there will be other women who are going to be speaking. Who are the speakers at the event? Are they all white guys or are there also women, in the United States we use the phrase, people of color of different ethnicities, races, that are actually included? And if they're not, then I need to be willing to not show up either. I'm not that important. Also, stop mansplaining. What is that? Don't repeat what a woman just said. And tried to explain it to everyone. She said it, they understood. <laughs> I catch myself. You know? Someone says a woman says an idea, no one says anything, then the guy says the same thing and we Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let them know what you said is good. Yeah. Yeah. Call people out when they're not recognizing that she said what she said is good. Support women-owned initiatives and businesses. Put your money where your mouth is. And correct people when people say, this one's for me. When people say that I'm babysitting my two sons, I'm not babysitting. I'm their dad. I'm parenting. That's what I'm supposed to do. But it's these small little things that kind of reinforce Patriarchy, the ways that women are excluded. Yeah. Yeah. Parenting, being with our kids, it's what we ought to do. It's it's what God asks us to do. It's not just a woman's place to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, a few <laughs> more things. So, decentering maleness and relinquishing patriarchy. This is from uh, Adrian. Marie Brown, when enough of us relinquish injustices that only pretend to benefit us, we tip society towards justice. So it's a commitment from all of us. It takes all of us to do this, but especially, especially the men. There are no people we should fear or disregard or think are lesser because they are born outside of some false concept of normal, and we saw that. In our story today we must be accepting open to those who are outside of what society tells us is normal and we have to listen we have to listen even when it's uncomfortable even when we don't understand even if it's hard to believe what they're saying if our hearts our minds are gonna be transformed we have to listen okay so for men who want to know love in their lives If a woman tells you she is tired, that the dynamic of labor, of work between you is in balance, it means you have to been carried without realizing it. (laughs) (laughs) She's not lying. You've been slacking. Get with it. If a woman tells you you're scaring her, you are. And you have been. It usually takes a woman a while to gather the words of their fear. Believe them. If a woman tells you she needs boundaries, step back immediately and listen to her. Don't force it. All right. But how do we do this work? How do we engage? Where does our motivation, our ability to do this come It's not something that we just kind of flip a switch and it happens. We're all human, we're growing, we're learning. And grace is extended to all of us. From Genesis to Revelation, we see how God is pouring out God's unending love and grace on people as they struggle to understand and to live into what God has for them. Now, God doesn't let them off the hook, but God continues to trust and believe that we can live out the commandments, that we can actually live according to God's word. Yeah. Yeah. But to do that, we have to leave behind guilt and shame. Yeah. These two things are crippling. So we do it out of freedom, out of the freedom that Christ has given us. Yeah. Yeah. It's out of that freedom that we engage the injustices, that we go out and we try and fight and break down and bring down patriarchy so that we can all become more whole. Will you pray with me? God, Jesus, we men confess the ways in which we have benefited knowingly. And unknowingly from patriarchy. We want to do better. So help us, God, to not fear. Help us also to realize that we're not Jesus. Do not let us fall into the trap of removing women's agency or ability to speak and act for themselves by thinking that we are here to save them. Help us to support, to see our sisters, and to know that it's you who heals. As men, we ask that you would help us to participate in the Holy Spirit's work of creating a more just and loving world for all. God, let us preach the good news of your love. Let us share the rule-breaking message of divine love. A love where Jesus turns that which society thinks is dirty, polluted. Where Jesus takes patriarchy and turns it into wholeness and hope. Let us share of a Jesus that conquers not only the demons of disease and death, but also those of isolation and exclusion. And help us, God, especially the men, as we work to let go, to relinquish patriarchy so that we all experience wholeness. God, we ask all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. During these next few minutes, as the band is playing, I want to open up the altar for those who might want to confess the ways that they've benefited unfairly at the cost of your sisters, at the cost of others. Perhaps your own actions that have put down women. Those who might want to let go. of these old ways and live into the new beginning that Jesus inaugurated, that Jesus shows us in this story. It's open for those who want to live and act according to the ways of Jesus. Also, I want to open it up for those who might have suffered or been hurt or experience the pain of the lack of opportunities or the exclusion because of the ways our society is made up, the ways that sometimes maybe our own parents reinforce painful things that make you feel like you're less than, that make you feel like you're not good enough, like you need to change something. That you live outside of what is normal and acceptable. If that's you, as a band plays, we want to pray for you. Pastor C, the leaders here, want to pray for you. And if this is also the first time that you might be hearing of this Jesus, whose love is unending, whose love is available to everyone, whose love frees us to be who we've been created to.